Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 7th, 2017, and this is episode 2127. Of course, December 7th, the day that will live in infamy, the day that the United States was ushered into World War II and entered the war in both fronts because we were attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. I won't say much on that today or give it any major analysis, but I will at least acknowledge it. Um, it's interesting to me. I was thinking about it today when I was putting the show together. And, you know, the date's always in the listener call show, and since this is a Thursday show, this is a listener call show. So, you know, really listener calls for And when I typed 12717, I thought, oh, it's, it's Pearl Harbor Day, and I realized I hadn't really heard anything about it. I'm sure it'll be on the news or whatever, but... It's different today. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, and I guess you're talking, you know, 40 years ago almost, um, like Pearl Harbor Day was like everybody kind of, hey, it's Pearl Harbor Day. And, and you know, it's a, it, 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 it's not like I'm saying we should just still be really talking about it, right? It is, you know, 1941 uh, is, is, is how long ago that we're talking about. Here we are in 2017. Um, But it does kind of show a cultural divide, I guess, in the, the, the era that I grew up in and the era that young people are growing up in today. And it just makes me think of our recent interview uh, with, uh, with Andy Fancher, the young man who's going around and, and, and interviewing the last of the World War II veterans. And just thought I would acknowledge that today. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, it is a listener call show. This is where you call in and ask your questions, and I try to help you out. Uh, the way you do that is you call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, you leave me a message, and the way to do it is like make your point or ask your question immediately, then follow up with the details. It'll go better that way, and you'll be more likely to get through the screening and get on the air. Or you can go to the speak pipe. I realize I have a big backlog in the speak pipe. The pun not intended, but works, right? The speak pipe is backlogged. I've been much better about handling the calls to the email box than I have been about going to the speak pipe. I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because you guys have done a really great job lately with your calls of following procedure and getting through on a clear line and what have you, and I've been getting enough out of the mailbox today. I checked, like, man, I got to, like, next week I might dedicate everything just to the speak pipe to unclog the pipe a little bit. But you can use the speak pipe. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. There's a button there that says speak pipe. You push the button. It's pretty self-explanatory from there. Follow the same procedure. Here's what we're going to have today uh, for a lineup of calls. I got, should you get an agent when you sell your house? And a service that this young lady's asking about I haven't used before, but I'll take a look at it and give you my thoughts on it. Uh, how long can you safely store gunpowder? And what do you do with it if you can't store it any longer, if it's uh, bad? How do you know if it's bad? Really easy one, actually. Uh, making the decision on buying cast iron cookware. Uh, some FUD going around is what it sounds like to me, but I will talk a little bit about it. And a related question, kind of, sort of, a uh, question on bacon presses. And uh, is there any use for a bacon press other than bacon? Because I'm the one that always says I don't like one-trick ponies. Uh, or is there another option if you don't want to buy a bacon press? Now, we talk about buying silver an awful lot because it's a great store of wealth. But let's say you have that store of wealth and you want to uh, to 
to exchange it for wealth, right? You want to either get money or stuff. For some reason, you want some of your silver or gold to go away. Uh, what's your exit strategy? We'll talk about that. Because if you're going to buy something, you should know how and when you would sell it when you buy it. I believe that. We have a follow-up on the guy that had an old septic tank, and I talked about turning into an aquatic system. Good follow-up on that, so we'll uh, we'll talk about that today. I have a question on the barrel life of a typical 306 versus a 308. And, oh, man, I... Just when I thought I heard it all, I you'll see when we get there. And then questions on building and outbuilding, all of that and more in just a bit. Before we get to your calls, let's uh, remind you about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Uh, KnifeKits.com is a great company. been supporting us for a long time, and they are what they sound like, right? They're, they're, they're Another company that does what it says and says what it does, they're kind of paired up today, right? The two that, that I can say the most about that with their, just their names. You get kits to make knives at KnifeKits.com. Crazy, I know, but it really is an incredibly fun pastime. It develops a skill set. For some people, it becomes a hobby. For, for some people, it becomes a side hustle. For some people, it becomes a business. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Remember to get your discount. They do do a discount for members of the MSB. Next up, we have ReadyMadeResources.com. That's right, ReadyMade Resources, the other sponsor that does what it says and says what it does. All of the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. They got everything, guys. If it's a prepper thing, they have it. They're tactical, practical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it at ReadyMadeResources.com. And let's take a look at the year in history. We are up to the year 79. I have two. Mount Vesuvius blows its top, and I'm thinking that one's not done yet. So I'm going to read the other one from David Verne. I think I'm becoming a god, contributed by David Verne. In early summer, Emperor Vespian comes down with a fever and develops severe diarrhea. Filling the throes of death, he calls out, Dear me, I think I'm becoming a god, referring to the Roman practices of de deifying past emperors. Vespian ordered his servants to help him out of bed, saying, quote, An emperor ought to die standing upright. He died in their arms on June 23rd at the age of 69 after ruling the empire for 10 years. His son Titus succeeded him after sharing power for many years. People initially feared that someone might rise to challenge Titus or that he might turn out to be another Nero, but he continued on the same path of his father. His first acts were to outlaw treason trials and donating large sums of money to disaster reliefs for the efforts surrounding Mount Vesuvius. He will visit the site twice. He was unmarried without any children, but since he was only 40, people were looking forward to at least 20 more years of peace. My take by David Verne. Vespian's reign was focused on rebuilding the empire and didn't focus on military conquest. With Britain being the only front that remained active during his reign, notably he was the first emperor since Augustus to die a natural death and the first emperor to have his natural son succeed him. Uh, I guess also since uh, Augustus. Um, you know, kind of my thought on this is, doesn't things work better when you're not at war all around the world? Or all around the edges of your empire. I mean, honestly, like, do you ever really wonder? Do you ever really wonder? And let's not worry about social programs. Just if the United States got out of everybody's face and basically said, "We're going to go back to the," you know, there's not a lot of things I love about Teddy Roosevelt, but there was a few. And speak softly and carry the big stick. I like that overriding philosophy. Um, if we went back to that kind of a, a viewpoint, 
if you, if you jack with us, we'll jack your shit up. But if you leave us alone, you run your own affairs your way, even if we don't agree with them, and we'll handle all that with how we handle commerce with people. You know, I, what what might the, the the country and what might the world accomplish if we did that? And that's not that's not picking on the United States or, or making us out to be bad. It's just a question of how how we best used our resources. Just just a thought that maybe it, it is the good stance to only you know only counterpunch rather than getting out on the offense all the time and interfering with other parts of the world. It worked for Rome. It worked for Rome, but times will change. I'll just say that times will change. And here you see the the dividend that's being paid is Vespian's time with Titus, having him serve as co-emperor, grooming him for the job. He's able to step in, do the job, and keep the peace. Will that stay the same? Of course it won't. Of course it won't. Anyway, with that, before we get into today's show, reminder real quick, you can help support the show by doing what? Becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. That's all I'll say on that today, so that we can get right into your calls. Before I get to your call, though, I have a little piece I wanted to, to give you here And I know some of you don't really fancy this, but it will be short, I promise, on cryptocurrency. I have two things. Uh, one is that the Bitcoin price has gone absolutely mental. And since I've said something in the past that I've kind of changed my mind on, I really think it's important that I tell you that. Uh, number one, I'm not going to tell you buy or sell or trade or hold on Bitcoin today. I'm just going to say it's at about 16 grand right now. By the time you listen to this, it could be at 12 and it could be at 22. That's how crazy it is right now. Uh, Coinbase has been breaking all day. But I had said that Bitcoin has a fundamental flaw that will catch up with it somewhere between eighteen dollars and $25,000, and that was on the scaling issue. I've, I've dug into the scaling issue and the cost of transaction and everything else with Bitcoin a lot deeper, and I'm going to tell you it's not that there isn't any kind of concern at all, but it's way overplayed, and on some levels it's bullshit. It's bullshit. When you hear these like, it costs $20 to send $100. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And if you did that, you're dumb. I'll just leave it at that. But I do want to say this is my prediction for Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin will be somewhere between $25,000 and $35,000 in 2018. And it could be higher. It, it, it all depends. That doesn't mean you can't get hurt in it. So please, don't leap in ignorance But remember, if you want to get started, even though Coinbase has its issues, it's probably the easiest place to get started with a little bit. And if you open up an account at Coinbase and fund it with $100 worth of Bitcoin, which is your Bitcoin, you didn't buy it, they don't keep your money. I mean, you have Bitcoin now. They give you another $10 worth of Bitcoin, and you can do that through a banner on my site. But my other prediction with Bitcoin is this. If in all of this hoopla today... If by the end of next week or by the end of today or by the end of the month, if Bitcoin has a correction and comes down to like eleven or $12,000, the media is going to report that it crashed. It crashed. Bitcoin crashed. No. Bitcoin was at about 1100 bucks in January of 2017. If, if it ended the year... At about $7,500, it would be up about 700%. So just when you hear that Bitcoin crashed, because it probably will correct, but I'm also going to say this, it might not. 
I really think we have a fairly good floor at $10,000. What am I doing with my Bitcoin? I'm holding it. I'm holding it. But as I've said before, it's really easy for me to hold Bitcoin that I've acquired for $300. And it's a little bit different if maybe you acquired it and you're up three or four thousand dollars right now. You could cash out and wait to take the swing on the other side or take your profits and do something with them. I wouldn't fault anybody for anything, but this whole thing, like, it's all a bubble, it's going to go. No, it's going to be hacked. It's not. Bitcoin has never been hacked. Just don't buy into the hype on either side of this thing and, and be smart about your thing. Now, the other thing you'll notice if you go to the site today, I played with a thing called Minergate for a while, and I took the banner down because I wasn't sure how they were handling things. And uh, I've been playing with it a little bit more. I got the banner back up. And uh, Minergate's a program you can download and start mining on your own computer. A lot of the stuff that you'll mine, you won't get much of it. You really won't. And some of it you can get quite a bit of it, and it ain't worth anything. Uh, like Bitcoin, I wouldn't waste my time with Bitcoin personally. I'm not even sure how people are how, how people are selling the damn thing. I, I don't I don't get it. It's like two tenths of a cent per Bitcoin or something like that. But there's a currency I've mentioned a couple times that I kind of like what they're doing. They are a fork of Monero, and it's called Eon, like Eon Flux, A-E-O-N, uh, trading for between three and four bucks. I've made some money trading it recently, and it was the currency I decided, I looked at all the difficulties and what have you, and what was best to mine with CPUs. And Eon not only is good to mine with CPUs, you can't even mine it with a GPU. From my understanding, at least that option is not even available on Minergate. So maybe it can be done, but I think if it is done, there's no advantage. Like It's not like one is much better than the other. So I've been playing with it, and I've been making, I have two Macs running it, um, and I've been running it you know, pretty much all the time because those two computers don't do a lot. And if I pick the laptop and do something up with it, I pause it while I'm working on it so I'm not you know, eating up more CPU usage. Uh, but I'm getting about one kilohash off of two CPUs off of a Mac. One's an i Intel i7, but it's about three or four years old, and the other one's like an i5. And it's getting around 200 to 300 hashes, and the i7 on the Big Mac is getting right now this second 717. I know that might not mean much to many of you, but what it does mean is I'm making about 45 to 65 cents a day. Now, I wouldn't run out and buy a bunch of computers because of that, That's a long ROI. But if you got them around, or if you're going to pick up another one anyway and you get the right processor, um, you know, if you think about that, even at 50 cents a day, it's about, what, $350 a week? Uh, $7 over uh, two weeks, so $14 a month to do nothing, really. And then you can just flip it over to Bittrex or something and turn it into, you know, Bitcoin or you can hold the on or whatever you want to do. Um, it's, it's kind of fun. And if, if I was going to, if you're going to ask me like, what would you mine in it right now? I would say Eon, uh, the smart miner feature in Minergate tells you to mine Monero, which is uh, ticker symbol XMR. I haven't, you know, I let the damn thing run and run and run and run and run and run and run. And I finally ended up after a really long time with point one Monero, which actually is worth a few bucks, you know, but Not for the length of time. I have found by running it, you know, I ran both of them for a day on Eon and calculated the gain at like 50 cents. And then I ran both of them for a day on Monero and it was like 8 cents. So your mileage may vary if you have GPUs in your computers. These two machines do not have GPUs. Uh, but I'm just saying the, the banner's back. 
Um, I have determined they are paying me my affiliate uh, commissions on the people that have downloaded it off the site. So that's good. Uh, I was able to, I had about 3.5 uh, Eon in my account, and it's a little tricky. And if you have a problem getting your money out of Minergate, get in touch with me because they're not real clear about what to do, but it's not because they're screwing you. It's security protocols. You have to do some things and get an authenticator set up on your phone so that when you do it, you get a, a text, and that gives you a code. And So it's, it's, it's all in your profile online. And if you try to do it from the miner, it's really complicated. If you try to do it from your account online, it's actually pretty easy. And I did it, and the money was there right away. So it works, and if you want to give it a shot, I'd give it a shot on Eon, especially if you have a really good CPU set. Okay, now my tweak for it. So I was running it, and I'm running eight cores on my iMac, and it was getting maybe 730 hashes at the top end, sometime, but it was spending most of its time down in 600s. And I thought, you know, I'm really beating this beautiful machine up, running all eight. So I dropped it to, to like four, and it went down, but it didn't go down that much. So I put it on six, I put it on five, and I played with it. And it turns out on six, I get a higher average hash rate than any other thing, And so I'm running it on six cores, so two of the cores are resting at all times. On my laptop, it's got four cores in its CPU, and I'm running two or half. And I do get more running three, but I don't get enough more to feel like it's worth beating the processor up that much. And when I go to four, I actually get a tad less than three. So you, you, I do not think it's a good idea, unless you have just some old junk computer you don't give a damn about, to run all the cores. But you might want to play with that, and you might find that you can run less and get more, or you can run less and get almost as much. And in either situation, you're probably better off. Just So there's the crypto update, and that's it for the day on crypto. Uh, if that's not your thing, we're done. Uh, next up, I have a question from someone on getting a real estate agent to sell your house or not. We'll go ahead and take that call. Hi, Jack. My name is Kelly from Connecticut. My question is, should I use a realtor to sell my property or pay for a website that will list my property on the MLS? I'm looking at using usrealty.com. They have a deluxe package that seems to fit best for me at $139. The website allows you to add a commission for the buyer's realtor, but save the money on your selling realtor. Maybe somebody else can chime in on if they use one or not. I have already set up my guide to my new home, and it's ready to go, and it's 10% better. Thanks for all you do. Well, great question. Uh, let me start out with I do not know this company. I looked at their website. They look pretty legit to me. Um, so I do not know you know, what their track record is, though I can't find anything really bad about them. And in general, I like the idea of it. And let me kind of give you my thoughts on how I would make this decision. First of all, if I had to do, if I had to sell a house right now, I would probably use a service like this. I don't know if I would come down with this one, and I don't know if I would choose the package you did or maybe go a little bit higher end with it. But you definitely, if you do this, you do not want to cut the commission below about 3%. Because for most real estate agents, they're going to view a 3% commission as a full commission because in my experience, it's seldom that the listing agent is the one that finds the buyer. It's almost always somebody else out there. So you have a listing agent working on your end and a buyer's broker working on the other end, and it's usually the buyer's broker that I have never had my agent in all the agents I've employed, and, boy, I've employed some I really wanted to kill myself by the time we were done. Um, 
I have never had them make the sale except one time. One time, the first home Dorothy and I bought together, um, we went back to the agent that, that, that was our buyer's broker for it, and he had it sold. I, I got I to take this back. That's not true. So I think it depends on the market, too. He had it sold in two weeks, and when we bought, we sold that place. We moved to Pennsylvania. We bought a house there. And the lady that I met there, I met through a leads group, because the guy that, that helped us buy it, we went to him, and he was useless. The, the market appraisal he came up with on the house shorted us by about $30,000. He's like, I know we can sell it fast. I'm like, yeah, you can sell it fast because you're selling it stupid cheap. I, I found this lady named Jane Wells Schooley. Jane Wells Schooley, and she is in a program called Buy Referral Only. You basically have to – I think there's some marketing behind it, but in the end you got to know somebody to be referred to her is the way it supposedly works. And uh, she sold her house before the open house happened. She had an open house scheduled for the weekend, and, and, and somebody wanted to see it early. They came in, and they offered us a full-price offer, and they waived the inspection. So we said, good. Now, the market was really hot right then, and there wasn't a lot of things. And we've always been good about the way we market our houses, and I think that's, that enables your agent to sell better for you and enables your house to sell itself better. From there, it's all been downhill. Since then, I've sold one, two, three, four, five houses. And I have never had the agent that's listed it for me find me a buyer ever since. The first two, and that's probably why I gave it a chance so many other times. And I have always found the agent to be almost useless when it comes to negotiations. If you know how to negotiate, then your agent is nothing but a pain in the ass and in the way. Um, I've always had to end up doing their job for them on the sell and the buy side. So only having an agent representing the buyer, I would actually prefer that at this point. The justification for an agent is often, well, you know, you need somebody to show your house. Well, if you use a service like this, the, the buyer's agent shows the house. My agent never, again, I'm back to the two at the very first two I ever worked with were good. And they showed my house and sold it. They showed it one time each and sold it. Since then, none, no agent I ever had in selling five other houses ever showed the house. It was always, they would call me and tell me we needed to be out at certain times so people could come look at it. So I don't know what they're doing for their money. So the thing is, if you go to a discount agent at a 3% rate, it's usually going to get split between the buyer's agent and the seller's agent, which means there's only so much incentive there. If you go to a 3% rate, only to the, the, the buyer's agent, and that house is on multiple listing services, it's going to get shown and seen, and it's probably going to get sold. And you're going to have more leverage, because that agent's going to want their 3%. You think about if you're an agent, you're working on two deals, and one's going to pay you a point and a half, and one's going to pay you three points. Which one are you going to work harder on? And then you can cut all the bullshit out. So I, I think this is a good type of service. Exactly what level you should use and all, I'm not sure. But I see a lot of stuff like, you know, buyer qualification forms and all. Like You can get that stuff for free or you get it from, like, LegalZoom. And in, in, the, in the reality is the, 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 the buyer's agent should have their clients filling that stuff out anyway as part of the offer so that, you know, the offer is good, solid, and genuine. Um, so I, I have not found other than those first two, real estate agents to be very useful to me, especially as a seller. And right now, in most parts of the country, the market's pretty damn good. This is probably the worst time to sell of the year 
But if you're going to hold off until after Christmas, it should get pretty good pretty quick. So I, I'll give it a shot, and here's the thing. You can always decide it's not working for you and go do something else. Uh, let's take another one. Jack, Bob and Lano. Hey, I got a quick question for you about storing gunpowder. Um, three, three years ago, almost four, I had the opportunity, because I worked at a sporting goods store, to pick up some gunpowder for reloading fairly inexpensively at a time when it really wasn't much available. And I've been storing it in a powder magazine that I made. It's the plywood lined with it has a sheetrock wrap around it. That's what they advise. Anyway, I'm curious how long will that powder be good? Um, and and if it's not and when they, and when it does expire, then uh, what do I do to properly dispose of it? That's it. Hey, thanks for everything you do. Um, hope you had a good Christmas. Have a, I hope you have a good Christmas, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Uh, the answer is probably, it's probably going to last longer than you are. Um, I have some powder that I got from my great uncle that he got in the 50s that I still use and it still works. Clean, dry, no major swings in temperature, and you're, you're in pretty good shape. Here's the other side of it. Let me tell you what's not going to happen to gunpowder. Gunpowder is not going to go over time through some some sort of metamorphic process that you're going to load a you know published load and load you've loaded before or something like that that was within pressure and 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 didn't blow your gun up and somehow that that powder is going to turn into super duper powder and blow the gun up in your face. Right? That's that's not going to happen. If anything, it may become a little less powerful over time. Gunpowder is remarkably stable. If you have a can of gunpowder that's never been opened, its, it's shelf life um, it is almost indefinite until it's opened. But they put stabilizers in it. And when you open it, it's exposed to the, you know, the atmosphere. It, it begins to, to break down those stabilizers. But it's still... Very, very, very shelf-stable. So since you know it won't kill you, the the way I would test it, because I don't know any other good way to test it, I'd, I'd load up a known load, um, and I'd go out and shoot it. And if it shoots well, you're good. And if it goes, then, well, it's, it's bad powder. Um, getting rid of it, kind of dicey, right? I mean... But but the reality is, if if you wet down powder, it it is pretty well neutralized. So I mean, I would still probably get rid of it in some other way. I've never actually gotten rid of gunpowder, so I'm I'm not really sure. If anybody out there knows, like, what would you do if you had to get rid of a, a couple cans of powder because um, you you didn't think it was good enough to use anymore? What would you? I, I don't really know. Uh, again, because I've just never had powder go bad. Again, I've got I got powder from my great uncle Pete, who was a staff sergeant in World War II, that got the powder in like a bulk buy with a buddy in the 1950s, and uh, it's a ball powder. It's very similar to H414. I don't remember even exactly what it is, but what I do is I load uh, H414 um, uh, loads at 10% of, of maximum as my maximum, since I'm not exactly sure of what it is, uh, but it's worked just fine. And I've, I've loaded uh, uh, 306 and 308 both with it. And I, I've never, never had a problem with it. And, and I would go out and shoot it tomorrow. I'd go out and hunt with it tomorrow. 
I probably won't, but if I if, if that was my choice, like I had ammo I had hand-loaded with my Uncle Pete's powder from the 1950s, and I could either go hunt or not go hunt, I would not go hunt, I'll tell you that. Um, so I, I would just rock on with life and, and go out and give it a shot, because, again, what it's not going to do, you're never going to find anybody that legitimately claimed that they used old powder and blew up their gun. That's not going to happen. You could have some quality concerns or something like that, but go for it. Uh, let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Ted from Missouri. I'm wondering if there are different quality levels for cast iron cookware. Uh, we're wanting to, I'm wanting to get my wife some cast iron cookware for Christmas and start her collection that she's wanted for years. Uh, various websites, there's quite different pricing between the Lodge website, various big box stores, etc. Some Amazon reviews say that it looks like they are shipping factory seconds through Amazon. Uh, I'm curious to see if there's different quality levels or if it's just a distrib you know, pushing pricing out to distributorships and uh, lower markups. Thanks. Bye. Well, Ted from Missouri, every time I read Amazon reviews, I think that the review process is a great thing, and it's it's given us more collective intelligence than ever before. The problem is sometimes there's not a lot of intelligence in the collective. Um, I, I've purchased quite a bit of Lodge cast ironware off of Amazon. Uh, I can tell you that this audience, through my reviews and what have you, has purchased a lot of Lodge cast iron cookware off of Amazon, and I have never gotten an email from someone that says they felt like they got a second or a low quality or a bad thing or whatever. I mean, a lot of people just don't know what they're doing when it comes to cast iron. Now, are there different grades of cast iron? Yes, there are. And it's a matter of how much you want to pay and what are you want to pay for, or do you want to go hunt antique malls to get what they used to not make that they now make again. So what do I mean by that? So the basic two ways that we can have a cast iron piece of cookware is, first of all, they're all done the same, basically. They're cast and sand molds. And when that's done, then they're you know cleaned up and, 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 and slags taken off them and all that stuff and made into the final product. And then usually before they're shipped, they're pre-seasoned anymore. They, there are some companies out there that make cast iron cookware that will send it to you unseasoned, meaning it's just raw iron and you oil it and, and season it. Most places pre-season it, and I tell you I would prefer it that way. Um, not everything you do yourself is better. Uh, but then, well, how is that how is that treated once that casting is done? And there's really what you'd call milled and unmilled. Unmilled means when you look at the, the cooking surface, it'll have little beads that are from the casting in the sand. And all of the lodge cookware will have those little beads. And then a milled surface will be absolutely smooth polished. Now, this is actually a fairly intensive process with cast iron. It, it's not something, I think Paul Wheaton probably wrote the best article in the world about cast iron. I'll have a link to it in the show notes so you can look at it. But Paul basically got a drill and a brush and decided he was going to mill one himself and realized that that was not worth doing. So, obviously, this is something you're going to pay more for. There are some premium, I guess you'd call them cast iron manufacturers out there today, uh, I have a link to a couple of them in the show notes. One is called The Field Company, and they make a skillet. If I was going to pay more money for a skillet, this is probably where I would go. 
the other thing they used to make, and I occasionally come across these in antique malls, is a thinner cast iron skillet. So it was a lot lighter. It almost feels like this isn't cast iron that was milled. And if you can find one of those at an antique shop, it's worth picking up. Field Company makes these, and I think they charge like 88 bucks for a brand new number 10 skillet, which ain't that bad. It really isn't for what it is. It's a milled, lightweight cast iron skillet. The only downside of Field is they make an 8-inch, a number, well, it's not even an 8-inch, a number 8 skillet and a number 10 skillet. If you'd like anything else, you have to go elsewhere. Right now, that is all that they have. They are pre-seasoned, and they make a damn good product, and they were a company that came through a Kickstarter. Um, probably the company that I know of that builds like the highest end cast iron that I can remember anyway. Because there's a lot of the, the, see, ten years ago the answer would have been, well, they used to do that, but they don't anymore. Milling was something that was done, you know, at the turn of the century. The old Griswold skillets are that way. A lot of the other old skillets you can find milled or unmilled. But you know, ten years ago, no one in in, in the modern world made a milled cast iron skillet. Everybody had gone over to doing different types of cookware. And as cooking has got, you guys know how cooking has come on as an industry in the last 10 years. There's all kinds of shows and stuff, renewed interest. And people are discovering that the stuff their grandparents cooked with is better than all the new shit we have. Because I love cast iron and there's a lot of things to love about it. It's not best for everything, but it's best for most things. So they, these companies capitalizing on it, I think Phoenix is the other one I'm talking about is in Oregon and They make beautiful, beautiful, beautiful cast iron cookware. But if you want a 12-inch skillet, which, by the way, is kind of like six to not, six-tagonal shape, like an octagon, six-side octagon, it, it is uh, $270 for a 12-inch skillet with, with, with the lid. It's really nice. I would not fault you for spending your money on it, but I always tell you whether or not I'll spend my own money on it. I won't spend my money on it. Because I know I can go up to the antique mall and bump around up there for long enough, and I'll find a 10 or 12-inch skillet, you know, made by Griswold in the 1930s or the 1910s. And it might look like hell, but I'll bring it home, and it'll be beautiful in a day of work. And so it's hard for me to be willing to pay that much more money just to get that milled service. And I'll also tell you something else. The unmilled Stuff that you can get from Lodge. The longer you use it, the better it gets. And it gets almost to the same level as milled over time. As you cook with cast iron cookware, assuming you treat it right, it gets better and better and better. The oil seasoning basically is forming a polymer. And that polymer over time actually builds up layer on top of layer on top of layer, and it mitigates the fact those little beads are there. I have a lodge flat skillet. Okay, I think it's a 10-inch square skillet, two handles. And it's only about three months old. I just went and cooked eggs on it over easy eggs. You know, they don't slide around like a Teflon skin. But I mean, they don't, there's nothing to cooking an egg on it. It's not like you can't do it. I make omelets in it. I'm, and it's only a few months old and it's, you know, the shitty stuff that's like a $50 skillet. So it, it, it's kind of up to you where you want to go with it. But that's the big difference. And you can obtain that difference by buying a premium product. Or you can obtain that difference by going to, you know, flea markets and antique malls and stuff and looking for it and knowing what to look for. 
And what you're looking for is you, you can tell it's a smooth service. And, and Paul's article is really good about, you know, th throwing it in the oven in the cleaning cycle and all. Let me tell you something, though. If you find yourself a cast iron skillet at a, at a you know, antique mall, flea market, whatever, and that finishes about 90% good, do not strip it. There's nothing that's going to hurt you in there. You know, give it a good oiling and, and, and heat it up and let it cool off and then wipe it down and do that again and then start cooking with it. I mean, no soap in the cast iron cookware. No soap in the cast iron. But it's dirty. It's going to be a thousand degrees when you cook on it. Nothing lives in the heat, dude. It's fine. Do not do that. Get a ringer. I don't care what cast iron cookware. Get a ringer. I'll put a link in the show notes where we can get it. It's a little piece of chainmail armor looking stuff for cleaning it. All I clean my cast iron cookware with is water and that thing. And if I get a little bit of stuck on stuff, that's giving me some hell, some coarse salt. Coarse salt is great and it helps build that surface by acting as a mild abrasive and helps form that polymer. And it's really, really great, great way to take care of your cast iron cookware. Um, but the whole seconds thing, I don't know if there's some shitty cast iron on Amazon. I, I, that I can't speak to. I'm sure there is. There's all kinds of Chinese knockoff companies and stuff like that. But I have never seen what I would call a second from Lodge. And I would, uh, I would guarantee you, being the company that Lodge is, if you ever got something with a real flaw in it and you got in touch with them, that they would replace it. I, I mean, I wouldn't even think twice that they wouldn't. So that's my thoughts on it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, long-term listener from Georgia. I've got a question about cooking bacon and using a bacon press and then just a general public service announcement about how awesome the Barkeeper's Friend product is. Details, I'm thinking about buying a baking press like what they use at Waffle House. When I cook bacon in my skillet, the ends typically curl up and they don't cook. There's also grease that splatters everywhere. I'm thinking a press would probably fix this, but this is a one-use gadget that you say you don't use and try to avoid. Is there a function stacking alternative to the press? Do you have one, and which one would you recommend, or what solutions do you have to fix this issue? Um, and also... On a separate note, I wanted to recommend Barkeeper's Friend. I have a white sink that we just installed, and not long after, we started getting little gray scratches in there, and nothing else worked until I found Barkeeper's Friend. You sprinkle a little, and it's good as gold, so it's a fantastic product. Super cheap, too. It also works on uh, on our bathtub, where we have those little built-in non-slip ridges on the bottom. They get really dirty. Uh, nothing else works on that, but you sprinkle some Barkeeper's Friend on it, and everything's sparkling white. So I've been listening for about eight years. I don't think I've ever heard anything about this product discussed. I just wanted to throw that out as well. So thanks, Jack. Bye. So I I'm going to go right back. If I was going to buy a bacon press, I'd buy, buy it from Lodge. And if I'm going to buy a bacon press, I don't want the round ones that look like they're for a hamburger. I want the, even though they call them bacon presses, I want the, the rectangular shaped ones that are long like bacon is for bacon. And I share your frustration with bacon. And uh, can you can you do anything about the curling ends of a piece of bacon without a bacon press? Well, when I didn't have a bacon press, I'd grab two coffee cups and set them on the end of it. You know, and you'd have to move them around because you have more than one piece of bacon in there, right? And it, it worked okay. 
And uh, I, I don't have the bacon press that I'm going to recommend for you. It's probably better than what I have because it's got more weight to it, and it's going to add to the other utility that I'll, I'll tell you that these things will do for you. But um, I, and my, you know, it's just these two calls, even though they came in back to back, they go together perfectly. Uh, again, synchronous in the audience here is always interesting. But in my my travels to these local antique malls here that my wife likes to tool around in, the only thing they're in usually for me is some, maybe some tools and some cast iron cookware. I found an aluminum bacon press. <gasps> oh my God, Jack! It's aluminum. You're gonna die. Your brain's gonna rot. Aluminum cookware is safe, especially as a press. About the only way you're gonna get any aluminum into your food from cooking with aluminum cookware is high acid things like tomato sauce. So don't use aluminum pans for cooking things like that. But for a press. I'm more worried about the temperature of the water in my pool and the fact that it's going to freeze tonight than I am about the fact that it's depressed made of aluminum. But I saw this thing, and it was like five bucks, and I'm like, that has to be a 100 years old. Uh, so I got it, and I went, you know, you dumbass, you should have got one of these a long time ago. And I'll probably pick up a cast iron one to go along with it, because a lot of times I have more things I want held down than I have surface area of the press. But I'll tell you, the, the cast iron will help you in other ways. So I don't like one-trick ponies, and I can't make this thing do other things, but it, they're not expensive. They're like 13 14 bucks. I got a link in the show notes for you to one of them. Um, and they don't take up a lot of space. So when I say I don't like things that are one-trick ponies, I don't like gadgets that take up a lot of counter space or shelf space or whatever, and, and and they don't really do anything except one thing. That really bugs me because it's cost and it's space, and it, and it does one thing. So the press only only thing I know to do with it is as a press, but it does other stuff really well. Last night uh, I made some New York strip steaks for Dorothy and I, and I set the press on top of the steaks. One thing it did is by, I was cooking them in a, I was cooking them in that cast iron skillet. I was just, or the, the, I guess it's a, it's a skillet. Uh, griddle, I guess is the word I'm looking for, the griddle. And, uh, one thing it does is if you're not going to put them in the oven, and I didn't feel like doing that last night to finish them, it holds a little more heat in them so that they, they, you, you get them cooked through a little bit better, especially for Dorothy since I have to take hers up to like 147 so she'll eat it. I cook mine at about 140. Um, And uh, <clears throat> But when you put that on there, the other thing that it does is the weight kind of makes that steak, make sure it gets a good surface contact. So if before you season your steak, you get it nice and dry. That's the key to getting a good sear on anything, getting it good and dry. And then put that seasoning on, whatever you're using, whether it's just salt and pepper or something you made up. Last night I made some stuff up using salt, pepper, garlic, onion, cumin, paprika, thyme, and rosemary. Rose, thyme and rosemary, thyme and rosemary, a little grinding action going on. I made that up and coated both, of it. and you get that herb crusting, but that extra weight makes sure you get that good contact and you get a good sear. So that's another thing it does. It's they're great for burgers. You know, you can make your burger and you put your little hole in it, so it still puffs up. But when you cook it, at least even if you have like you're cooking four burgers, you only have one press. You kind of move it around as you're cooking. Your burgers get done better. They don't splatter as much. They don't puff up as much. You don't just don't go smashing them down. That ruins them. Uh, so it, 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 I find it useful in cooking more than just bacon. If you're making a sandwich and you want to toast it, 
I don't make a lot of sandwiches, but if you want to make one, you know, you set that, that sandwich in there and you, you put that on top of it, you get, you get a nice good toast, your cheese will melt. So there's other things it'll do. Now, do you want the, like the way to do it without buying one? You get a, a skillet and you get another skillet. Cast iron works real good for this, by the way. And you get like a number eight and a number ten, so the one's a little smaller. You put your bacon in the number ten, you put the pan on top of it. It's just a pain in the butt to clean then. You know, the pan's all greasy, and it's really not. And if you're cooking, they're not really made to do that, but it works. It works just fine. It works good on sandwiches, too. But, man, 10 to, 10 to 15 bucks, and it doesn't take up no real space. Go ahead and get the press. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ted from Southern California. My question is, uh, what are the uh, main ways and the pros and cons of disposing of your precious assets uh, your precious metal assets. I'm thinking of uh, buying silver on a monthly basis and building that up in my portfolio. But just thinking ahead, uh, want to see what uh, what do you think are the best ways of of using that, uh, tapping into that uh, when it makes sense. Uh, I would assume in bad times you're in a barter, barter type of situation, but in good times probably that's Best wait also because if you just outright sell it, you're looking at capital gains taxes. But then the con of that is uh, would seem like a much more limited marketplace in which to to uh, do transactions. You know, you're not going to be able to buy your groceries uh, using silver bullion, for example, uh, as readily as with uh, with cash. But uh, just wondering what your thoughts are there. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Um, I, I, there's an old saying, barter is better, and I absolutely agree with it at all times. Barter is the best. Uh, barter is the agorist and anarchist tool. So if I needed to get rid of some silver, the first thing I would, I would say to myself is self, what are some things that I'm looking to buy or get done in the next six months? Even if I was going to do it six months from now, I'm going to do it within six months. Maybe I'll go ahead and do it now. And I'll use silver on it. And a lot of times, you can get people that you wouldn't think would take silver to take silver. A lot of times, if you're going to have like contracting work done or something like that, a lot of your bigger contract companies won't do it, but your, your handyman type guys or something, they usually won't take it on materials, but a lot of times they'll take it on labor, or they'll take half the labor in silver, half in cash, things like that. Now it's an exchange between two private individuals, and nobody knows nothing between you, the guy you did it with, and the fence post. So you, you work out how that works out. If you want money for your silver, the good news about silver is it's it's fungible. You can go get money for your silver tomorrow. Now, they're not going to pay you what the website says silver's selling for because that's a little bit under what they're going to sell for. They're going to sell for a little over that, and they're going to pay a little less than that. That spread is their profit. And honestly, the way I look at some of these companies, I don't understand how they make money because – you know, it moves up and down day to day. They can pay more for it today than they're going to sell it for tomorrow. Real easy. But over time, I guess it all equals and averages out. Now, all you have to do is find a couple places that are selling silver in your area and call them up and say, this is what I have to sell. What are you paying for today? And they will tell you. Now, if it's numismatics where the grading is really important, they won't be able to tell you that. 
But if they tell you they can't tell you what they're paying for run-of-the-mill silver eagles or generic silver rounds without seeing it, they're probably not worth dealing with. Or if they tell you, we can't tell you what we'll pay you for it until we verify it's genuine, okay, that's fine. So assuming it is genuine, what are you going to pay for it? Right? Like, I'm not, if, if I come in and it turns out I have counterfeit shit, I'm not going to expect you to keep your, your price. And the price may change before I get there, but I want to know what you're selling it for today. You call three or four shops like that, and you'll find the ones that are, you know, paying a fair price and the ones that aren't by the differential between them. Most shops are honest, and odds are if you call 12, you're going to get 12 answers that are very similar. So, here's the issue. You go and sell $5,000 worth of silver, they're going to cut you $10.99. And they're going to cut to 1099 because they're legitimate businesses and they don't want to have the Department of Making their SAD come and see them. So you're going to have tax reporting on it, and you're going to pay capital gains tax on it, which right now I think has a maximum rate of 28%. Uh, and it can, be, it can be lower, and that's going to be based on how long you held it. You're going to declare a basis on it, and that's going to determine your profit or loss. Now, the thing about that is silver goes up and down all the time, and it's really hard for anybody to prove when you actually got it, so you do with that information as you see fit. And then there's other information you might do with as you see fit as follows. I believe it's $600. It may be $500, but you can find out in advance what it is. That It's once you do more than that amount of business with any buyer in one year that they must issue you a 1099. Meaning if you tool your ass down to the pawn shop that buys silver and gold and sell them $350 worth of silver, they just write you up a ticket and, and give you your money and you go on about your way. So if you needed to sell $3,000 worth and you went to 10, 10, 10 different shops to do it, then you do what you want with that information as well. Okay, I'm just just trying to explain to you how things work. All right, um, So... Those are your, your your two ways. Either you're going to liquidate for cash or you're going to barter with it. In all cases, the IRS says you're supposed to pay taxes on it. Depending on what was done and how it was done, the person receiving it, if they received it in return for labor, is supposed to pay tax on it. If, For instance, let's say I had some silver and I was going to have you do $300 worth of work for me. Well, the way I'm supposed to pay tax on the silver is... Since the work would be valued at $300, if I had paid $250 for the silver, when I spend it with you, I have a $50 gain. You are supposed to report it as a $300 income. Oh, and they're, they're worse than that. Let's say it wasn't no silver involved. Let's say I was good at something and you were good at something. So you came to me and said, Jack, I need you to do this for me. And I said, I'll, I'll do it for you if you'll do this for me. And we valued it at $300. And we both swapped, right? So I did $300 worth of work for you, and you did $300 worth of work for me. You know what the IRS says? We're supposed to both report it as income at $300. It's not a wash. How many people do you think do that? You do what you want with that piece of information. But the beauty of silver and gold is if you just need money and you're going to pay the taxes on it, you can just go sell it anytime you want to get cash for it. I would always prefer to do barter between private individuals over doing that, though, because there's no loss in the exchange on the value. 
Generally, the person taking the silver will take it at spot, and the person spending it will be happy to spend it at spot. Both of them do better that way, and life goes on, and this is why I love silver and gold as anonymous wealth. It's also one of the reasons I prefer silver, because it's easier to deal in smaller amounts, uh, or a smaller uh, value. Uh, if you do need, let's say you're in a, in a bind. Let's say you're in a bind. And you need some money, it, it's, it's, it, but you only need a few hundred bucks, and you're willing to sell some silver for it. You go down to the pawn shop, sell a couple hundred bucks. You have an ounce of gold, you know, it's well over a thousand bucks. And then when you start buying fractional ounces of gold, it the premium kills you. And they don't ever pay you the premium back. You pay the premium on one end, but not the other. So, you know, there you go. Those those are your options with that. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jeff. This is Justin from Florida again. I really appreciate you taking the time to answer my question about using an old concrete septic tank for water catchment. I like your thoughts about using it for an aquaculture system, and, that's one, and I'm wondering if you had any specific thoughts or recommendations about moving in that direction since it involves in, in several of these large-scale systems. The tank is essentially a large rectangle. It's roughly 6 feet high, 10 feet long, and around 4 foot wide. It's got inlet and drain holes, but those can be filled with a few bags of concrete without any real problems. So a few questions offhand. You mentioned painting it. What would be the reason to paint it? Is it functional or just for aesthetics? You know, I'm not really familiar with why you would need to paint concrete for, for a fish tank. Uh, would a liner be required? I wouldn't think so, but wanted, again, wanted to get your input on that. And then with the size of the tank, I was thinking of at least partially burying it, if not pretty much fully burying it. Are there any drawbacks or downsides that you can think of doing this? And then lastly, you mentioned using burial vaults for some of the aquaculture systems. I was wondering if you could uh, point me in the right direction or a video or a name or anything so I can learn a little bit more about that since it would be very similar to the my tank. Again, thanks for all you do. Look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you. Let's start out with uh, <clears throat> the burial vaults because I can't be that much help on that. The only reason I mention that is I happened to have been doing some research, and I was on one of the aquaponics forums. I think it was Backyard Aquaponics. And I tried to find something out. I found a couple mentions of it, but not as detailed as the one I remember reading. So you can kind of search through and try to find this. But it was a guy in Florida somewhere that was getting them pretty cheap, and they would even come with a... A thing and set them up for you wherever you want them. And I think he was even able to get them to put some holes in them. Um, how you'd go about that, who you'd talk to, you probably wouldn't want to be buying them from the cemetery people, right? The the final arrangements people, because they mark everything up. You'd want to buy direct from whoever their suppliers are, and I guess you could kind of look around your area and see if that's an option for you. But I don't I don't know any more than I said in the last call that I answered for you, other than some people do this. Okay. Now let's go on to your tank. So 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 four foot by ten foot by six foot deep. Um, that's about 1,850 gallons, so it's a sizable tank. Um, you can definitely do quite a bit with it. Paint, I was suggesting that you might paint it because it might be ugly. That is the only reason why I would not paint the interior at all. I'm sure you could come up with a paint that would be good for a water tank if you wanted to, um, and you could paint it either like a dark color or a light color, depending on what you wanted to do, but I wouldn't bother with painting the interior at all. Um, burying it. 
I absolutely would, because six foot is inconvenient. Um, if I had it and I could do anything I wanted to with it, I would probably bury it almost all the way into the ground. Uh, since you're looking down at like a pond like you would typically expect, if you're doing any kind of pumping water somewhere and bringing it back to it, the lower it is, the easier that is to do. That said, my timber frame tanks are right at about 37 inches high, and uh, that is a really convenient height to set like a bar up on and kind of hang out around and look at, and dogs don't get in it, and kids don't get in it, and ducks don't get in it. The downside is it's not underground. When it's underground, you're going to have a lot better temperature uh, moderation. You're never going to have it freeze all the way solid through to the bottom if it's in the ground. It's just not going to happen unless you're somewhere where the permafrost goes six feet down. So I'd get it as deep in the ground as you're comfortable with for the situation. As far as setting it up, it all depends on what you want to do with it. It's never going to be aquaponics. Uh, unless you're gonna, you're gonna set, you know, two big huge rows of, of, uh, of grow bed or something into it because it's, it's, it's so much water. It's so much water. So again, I see it as an aquatic system. That said, I would get some ebb and flow beds into it. Um, even though it's bigger in some ways, it's not a whole lot more volume than's in my eight by eight timber frame pond. And if you look at, I have that set up. I have a, 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 a Danner, pump which is you know a pretty good fountain pump that you can you know you can just go to the website and and, and put in danner d-a-n-n-e-r and find the review i did on the danner pump or you can look at the lanches pump either one would be fine for that and the big thing is to get it off the ground do not have the pump way up high and don't have it all the way on the ground if it's a six foot tank i'd have the pump at about three feet right about mid water column I've got mine the bottom, and I'm talking about the bottom of the pump where the where the water gets taken in at about 50% of the way up. You know, I have about 36 inches of water depth, so I have the bottom of my pump at about 18 inches, right? Just because it's the middle. That's the cleanest spot in the water column is the middle. Your sediment is on the bottom, and your floaties are on the top, so you go to the middle, and you have the least amount of gunk in your water you're pumping around. Just a, a, a pump like that going through two to four of some sort of ebb and flow beds are going to give you all the filtration you need. And, you know, you can have a pretty good assortment of fish in there. I mean, you got to decide what you want to do. You can do, you know, catfish or bluegills are probably your two best options, maybe both. Uh, a lot of plant life. I would mo go look at my videos of the timber frame pond on my YouTube channel, and I would model what you're doing on that. Aesthetically, some other things you could consider You could put a, a wooden facade around the part that sticks up above the ground. That would look pretty cool, um, depending on you know what you wanted to do. And then that would let you put, like I said, kind of like a bar top on it. Um, I don't know that I would, but you could, and it would look good. Again, the paint I was suggesting is just solely for the purpose of you know appearance. So if you're going to put a facade around it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't paint it. But paint's a lot cheaper than building a wood facade. Personally, my thing is I'd take some time. And I'd really think about this. Once you set this up, you're not going to want to have to move it. You don't want to commit any type 1 errors. Now, type 1 error, if you've never heard the term, there's a real sophisticated explanation of a type 1 error. But the easy understand definition of a type 1 error is an error that you regret from the day you do it for the rest of your life or as long as it affects you anyway. And changing it is either very difficult or impossible. 
So you don't want to do that. You don't want to create a Type 1 error with something that's large and heavy. So, you know, if you if you think you want it in the ground a little deeper, think about why and, and get it a little deeper if you can. If you want it raised up, you know, think about what that means. If you want to pump water off somewhere else and have it return, again, the lower you go, the easier it is to do. I mean, that's just a, just a flat reality there. If you had it... You know, sticking up about six inches out of the ground like a like a pond, you know, you could have all kinds of grow bed running off it. Maybe it could actually be more of an aquaponics level system. It certainly would be what you would really consider. And again, this is where people are, you can't say infinite unless you really know. For for all intents and purposes, it would be infinitely expandable at that size. If I had it, it's what I would do with it. It's, a, it's absolutely what I would do with it. Um, To me, that makes a lot more sense, gives you a lot more utility. And, you know, originally you were talking about storing water. You still have the water. Sure, would have to go so a filter or be purified or whatever, but if you ever need it in emergency, you still have the water. But then you get, you know, fish. You got aquatic production. You got, you know, vegetation that you can produce out of it. You got beauty. You got functionality. You get so much more. That's what I would do. Uh, let's take another one. If you have any more follow-up on this one, it's kind of interesting, let me know. Jack, this is Eric from Colorado. I found your show about two weeks ago. I love it. I've been binging all your episodes. I'm through about 75 of them. been listening on 1.5 speed. I have a quick follow-up question in regards to episode 2085, where you were discussing building a deer rifle. I'm in a similar situation as that caller. I've been reading that on the 30-06 cartridges, while I understand your logic about the versatility They have a practical lifespan of about 1,000 to 2,000 rounds before the degradation on the gun just becomes too much. I wanted to find out your thoughts on that versus the 308 cartridge. Is the, is the lifespan on that simply hearsay? Does it really matter? Is that enough practical life for an entire lifespan out of a gun? I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Keep up the great work. Enjoy your vacation. Looking forward to hearing back from you. Have a great day. My my head hurts from that. I, I feel like I've actually lost an IQ or point or two from being told that. And I'm not picking on you because you're not the source. You're the messenger. It is preposterous on its face. And just when I had thought that I had heard every single thing that a member of the 308 cult could throw at the 306 as to why the 308 was better... I just, I, I don't know what to say. There, there is some tiny sparkle of legitimacy in this that we'll get to in a second, but let's talk about why it's stupid first. Um, the concept that a 306 rifle fired a thousand to two thousand times is just done and you can't do it. It's just, it's a paperweight is, is retarded on its face. Um, barrel wear could be an issue, but that's not what it sounds like this source told you. So let's stick to 308 versus 3006 and the rifle itself just wearing out and not being safe to use anymore or something. Let's start out with the freaking fact that the pressure limit for the 308 is 62,000 PSI and the pressure limit for the 3006 is 60,000 PSI. So they're basically the same guns made from the same materials, and the 308 has a higher pressure limit. So if anything was going to actually wear out the gun itself rather than the barrel, 
the 308 would do it faster because it's beating on it a little bit harder. That said, that 2000 PSI is pretty academic, but it ain't like the 3006 is rocking off at 90,000 PSI and wearing out the, you know, like it's a 50 BMG or some stupid shit like that. Um, now, barrel wear. I would tell you the average barrel, before there's enough wear on it, to be even possibly significant for the average sportsman slash hunter recreational shooter is somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 5,000 rounds for any gun. If you were getting like mythbuster level scientific nitpick with wear, it is probably the case if they are fired at the same rate of fire, firing the same bullets with comparable loads, that the 3006 barrel would experience wear faster than the 308, but not that much. Because the only difference at that point would be a slightly higher powder volume. That's it. That's it. And I don't understand this with people that are like cult followers of the 308. I've never met someone like me that's a member of the 3006 cult that really has anything negative to say about the 308. We'll acknowledge it's a ballistic, it's academic. I just prefer it. It's The 308's more accurate. It's not more accurate than I am. In other words, the, the, the accuracy difference between a good 06 and a good 308, I'm not good enough that it matters. If we're starting to talk about eighths of an inch, like people win bench race competitions in the Olympics for, I'm not that good. I'm damn good. I'm not that good, and neither are you. But, you know, well, again, it, inherently, yes, it's more accurate. However, there's 06s that are more accurate than some 08s, whatever. What we'll say is that if you want to shoot heavier bullets, the 3006 has the advantage. And if you want to shoot anything from about 130 grains up to about 180 even, they're so damn close, it's, it, it, it's not worth worrying about. What do you want? But for some reason, people that are hyped up on the 308. Always want to try to find something negative about the 30.06. A gun weighs more. Well, first of all, what? no, it doesn't. I mean, if you have the same make and model of a gun, then one's a short action and one's a long action, you're talking maybe two ounces. Maybe two ounces. You're going to get a lot more on weight saving by buying the right gun in the first place. So it's just retarded, and it, it it's not worth worrying about at all. If you want a 308, go get a 308. But you ain't ever going to get to the point where you're going to be like, damn, barrel's shot out of this thing and the bolt's falling off of it and it's going to be a death trap if I shoot it again. So I wish I would have bought that 308 97 years ago because it would probably last like another month or so. It's just not going to happen. And I want to tell you something, too, about, you know, like a 1,000 rounds. People think you go through a 1,000 rounds. Not on a deer rifle, you don't. No, no. And you definitely don't go through 5,000 rounds fast. And I'll tell you that it's probably the case that for being good enough to go shoot a deer with, you put 10,000 rounds. And let's say that we ever, because we got into shooting a lot or something like that, we ever did wear a barrel in a rifle to the point where, you know, it's just not what it used to be. If we really love the gun, we can just have a smith put a new barrel on it. Or we can probably go sell the gun that many years from now, probably for about what we paid for it due to inflation. I'm sorry. This is just, again, 
This made my brain hurt. And when I went online and tried to verify that people think this way, and I found out that they really do, ugh. Again, I talk about the, the Amazon reviews and the collective intelligence being great, except sometimes the collective's not very intelligent. That's the same thing with firearms forums, man. Some of these friends I'm reading, they're like from you know 10, 15 years ago, and they're still alive, and nobody had the decency to put them out of their misery and kill them because it's stupid. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Buy what you want. And I, I have never met anybody. You know, that's not a professional bench rest shooter or something like that that has ever told me they bought a rifle and wore the barrel out of a hunting rifle. I've never even heard it. And the fact that someone phrase it as the gun itself wears out, that person is too stupid to be trusted with a gun. Let's take a final call of the day. Hi, Jack. This is Dana from Washington, and my question is about adding an outbuilding. Details. We are on a one-acre home site in Zone 8B with a substantial maritime influence. The property has no outbuildings, and I'm looking to add a 24-by-30 pole building, about 18 feet tall, so that it could have a walkable loft. We would run power and water, but no septic hookup. The pole building would serve as a shop, an agricultural processing facility, and storage. We'll also be able to drive up to the building. I've never had any kind of outbuilding before. What else besides location and utility should I be considering? As far as adding value, is it worth it to spend the extra money to have wood instead of metal siding? Do I need to insulate and keep it heated in the winter to avoid mold or other issues? Thanks for the survival podcast. It has encouraged me to make some positive changes in my life. Well, great questions, and all I can give you is my opinions here. This is certainly not my area of, like, super expertise or something, but I have a few thoughts on it. Number one, understand that when you put just about any outbuilding in, if you ever sell the property, you're probably never getting your money back. That's one of the reasons I bought the property I'm on now. I have two steel frame buildings uh, with, with uh, metal, metal sided and insulated. Um, one's about 1,800 square feet, and the other one's about 850 square feet. They're both on concrete slabs. If I put them in today, I would probably be in the neighborhood of $60,000 to $80,000 to put them both in. They're just, they're just that big and that well built, and, and concrete slab alone here, you know, the slab in the one's probably five, five grand or more, and the other one's probably at least 2,500 bucks, just in the slab before you can put the building up. And I bought this house for $205,000. And one of the things I looked at was those buildings, and I went, <laughs> he, he thinks this is worth more than it is because of that. And the appraiser's knife is going to cut him pretty deep. So let's make an offer on this and then negotiate it. So that doesn't mean not to do it. It just means, like, don't. So when you said added value, if you mean for yourself, that's one thing. But if you're thinking more along the lines of, you know, the resale value, it's not they're not worth anything when you go to sell the property because they certainly are. Uh, but... When the appraiser looks at them, they're not going to appraise for what you put into them. Just know that if you want to put improvements in the house where you get your money back through selling or selling, I'm sorry, the kitchens and bathrooms. Um, on wood versus metal, if you can do metal for less than wood, do metal. Because you know you guys have mill doing stuff. Metal doesn't mill do it. Doesn't mold it. Didn't. It doesn't do any of that stuff. <clears throat> so I would always. Go with steel frame, steel buildings over wooden buildings any day of the week. Um, 
it's not they last forever, but they last forever in regard to the human life expectancy of somebody that's in their 30s or 40s. Um, someday it will probably rust to the ground if it's not maintained, but you'll never see it. So you don't have to do much of anything to maintain it, and I like not doing anything. Not because I'm lazy, just because I got a lot of other things to do, let alone be out painting, siding, or sealing siding. So I would definitely go with that. Insulation. You ask me, do you need to? You don't need to, but it is, insulation is the last expense I would cut from a project. I'm not saying I wouldn't end up deciding I would cut it, but it would be way at the bottom of the list of cuttables. Um, it would also have a lot to do with what I'm doing. Like, how hard would it be to go back and insulate it later? Do I not have the money now? So then maybe I could. If I got the money now, I'm going to insulation is the best return you get on any construction project. Cost versus value is totally in your favor. So I would plan on insulating it. Do you need to heat it? I don't know. Do you want it to be warm in there or not? Um, you know, the thing about a building like that is a couple kerosene heaters go a long way to warm it up. But do you do you plan on wanting to use it in such a way that you might need it to not freeze in there when it's freezing outside? If so, with a building that large, you may look at creating kind of a room within it, and that might be you know wooden walled or something like that, where the heating that's like a permanently installed heat source or something like that is in there. That that might be something to look at. He said you wouldn't do septic. I don't blame you, but I might disagree with you. So here, here's what I mean by that. Odds are, if you're going to put water and electric to it, you're going to be digging some trenches anyway. And you just might look at what it takes, because if you're mentioning septic, I'm assuming your house is on a septic, to go ahead and tie into the existing septic tank with pipe. Of course, the issue is the further away the tank is from the building, the more issue you have with do you have enough slope and drop to get flow through your your uh, your 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 drain pipe to get down into your septic. So if you can't do it, don't. But when I start hearing things like animal processing facility and stuff like that, I think it might be good if there was waste going to the septic. But then it might not be good. I don't know exactly what you mean by that. But you do need to think about if you're going to be processing animals, you're going to have bloody water and stuff like that. Where's it going to go? Uh, so maybe thinking about where you can put in some quarter, some port, sort of a uh, water, uh, like a reed bed or something, like we talked about with Jeff Lawton yesterday in the permaculture world space, right? So that might be something else that you might really want to uh, to take a look at and, and consider uh, with this project. I have found people tend to want to put outbuildings as far away from their house as it seems like they can. If they have a fenced area, inevitably they'll put that outbuilding as far against that fence as they can. I can understand on some levels, but on other levels, I like the fact that my bigger outbuilding um, is not connected to the house. It's only a couple, it's like an alleyway, about maybe six foot alleyway between the one side of the house and the building, and they're both sitting, you know, rectangle to rectangle on a short end. And uh, there's a covered walk, and it goes all the way to the building. I like that. When it's freezing cold out and I need to go in there for something, the fact that the walk is short, I like that. When it's pouring freaking rain and I need to go out there for something, I like that. Right? So that's 
the type, I mean, I would just, is you're considering your site, you know, and then if you do that, and I don't know, now your building, it might make no sense to do that where you're at because of the orientation of the house and the lay of the land or whatever you're trying to do. Um, but if it does, then things like tying into that septic makes sense. Then things like maybe having a little bathroom in there makes sense, and that's useful. And, you know, it could even have small little guest quarters or something like that if, if, if that was the case. I don't know what you're looking at for foundation, but poured concrete's probably your best bet. Though I've seen some pretty nice pole barns and stuff like that with just a dirt floor. But uh, it's, you know, for processing and things like that. So then you want to want to think, like, do you want to put drains in your slab? I mean, that's one thing I don't have in my garage. There's no drains in the slab. Um, here, it would be probably pointless because you can't really get to go anywhere with it. But, you know, lay of the land and where it might go and where it might discharge, that would be some things to think about. Um, and then last but not least, you had a size in mind. When you're looking at the total cost of the project, if it costs a little bit more to do a slightly larger building, do it. I'm going to say it again. If it costs a little bit more to do a slightly larger building, do it. If it costs a little bit more to do a much larger building, do it. If it costs an exorbitant amount to do a building a little bit bigger than you think you need, you probably ain't going to do it. But here's what I'm going to tell you. You're never going to say, damn, this place is too big. I wish I didn't have so much room in here. It'd be much better if that wall was three feet closer to me. But you might say, damn, I wish this was three foot bigger that way and four foot bigger that way. And you'll never be angry that it's bigger. And with stuff like this, it's a buy once, cry once thing. You do it right from the beginning. But I, I have come to love my steel frame buildings. The, the, to me, the fact that I, I literally have to do nothing to take care of them. I don't care if there's a termite. I don't care if it gets wet. I don't. The only thing I care about is if it gets hit by a tornado and everything else can just go screw off. It doesn't matter to me at all. So those are those are my thoughts, and I hope that helps you with uh, with what you're doing and your project. And if you have any follow up or I misunderstood anything, please follow up on me, and I'll try to help you. As we wrap up, I do want to kind of back up. One of the callers today mentioned a product called Barkeeper's Friend, and when I answered that call, I didn't comment on that. I just want to reiterate, he's right. It is a great uh, cleaning product, especially sinks and stuff like that. Uh, it does an outstanding job. It's like three or four bucks a can, and a can lasts a long time. Uh, I do have a link in the show notes so you can find it if you've never seen it before. On that, you know, as, as always, you can help support the Survival Podcast by shopping online at tspaz.com. I mean, for stuff you're going to buy anyway, you can just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and uh, check that site out and check the products out there, or just cruise on over to Amazon from there, and you can help support the show. Uh, no matter what you're going to buy. Now, I have you know reviews for you every day, and I got one today that came from when I did the the show on herbal, um, er, you know, getting started in herbalism, and I'd mentioned a diffuser that I recommend, and I forgot to put it in the notes. And it is called the Ease Hold Aroma Essential Oil Diffuser. It looks like a little wooden vase, and it's got a pretty cool little light in it, and you can change it to different colors and stuff like that. But it's just a It's just a great product. It's about thirty-seven bucks, and uh, it's it's really a, a well 
done product with great reviews. And this is another one of those times where when I was researching to find one of these for myself a while ago, I almost start to get depressed with Amazon's review system with how many phony and fake reviews are on there. And, and thank God for the website, fakespot.com. I always check product now with fakespot. And uh, this one gets an A. The company gets an A. So these are legitimate reviews. Um, 4.5 stars overall with 490 reviews. And if you read some of the negative reviews, some of them have been altered to be back to positive reviews because they had a problem that got fixed. And some of them are the lacking of intelligence and the collective intelligence. She's like, you know, all I did was, was drop it on the floor and it broke. Well, yeah, okay. Anyway... It's a, it, it is a really great product. And herbal dif uh, essential oil diffusers are one of the great products that people don't really understand how valuable they are. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't even pretend to be one on TV like, say, Dr. Oz does because he definitely pretends to be a doctor. Um, and I... So I can't say anything that's designed to cure, treat, prevent disease, and these products aren't sold like that. And everything I'm telling you is just my opinion. But my opinion, and, and it's backed up by some facts, by the way, uh, is that a lot of essential oils function as antivirals, antibiotics, antiseptics. So when you are atomizing that stuff into your house, it kills stuff that you want dead. Uh, you know, I kind of leave it at that. And I've, I've said there's been studies done with certain essential oils sprayed in hospitals in Europe, and uh, they, they came out so well that, that a lot of places they still do that, and you can do that yourself uh, with one of these. Um, it really can help prevent, uh, pr uh, prevent help promote sleep. Uh, certain specific oils are really good for that, and uh, just having that in your room when you go to bed. Especially a lot of times, you know, that you just have that, that little bit of trouble shutting down. It can be good for that. I think it's good for your emotional health overall. Uh, definitely certain herbal uh, oils are really good for your respiration, uh, your, your respiration system. Uh, so it just, it, it does a lot to promote help and a better quality of life. And they're not real expensive. And it makes essential oils go a long way. You know, you're talking about putting like two drops in with some water to, to, to run this thing. And I knew there'd be a lot of, well, Jack, where do I get my oils? I kind of like the idea of what I talked about uh, earlier this week with going out and learning about different uh, herbs. And then when you find one that you want to try the essential oil of, you already got your diffuser. Go get that one and give it a shot. But, you know, it'd be nice to have a lot of something to get started with. So I found a, a company called Rada Beauty, R-A-R-H-A-D-A -A Beauty. Now, let me tell you something else. There's a, there's a whole lot of companies selling essential oils on Amazon. And they what you're looking for is no carrier oils, no filler oils. You want 100% pure. And a lot of them say that, and most of them that say that are and some of them aren't. But, again, I'm back to fake spot. I went through 12 companies before I found Rada that didn't have F and D reviews, or F and D grades on fake spot for fake reviews. But they have an 18 uh, different oil, they're little bottles, um, that have, you know, gives you a good assortment to work with. Rosemary, bergamot, lemongrass, clove, lemon, cinnamon, Uh, lavender, geranium, peppermint, tea tree, oregano, and a few other things. And that's like 36 bucks. 
So all in, you're looking at if you got the the diffuser and the oils, you're looking at about seventy bucks. Hey guys, guess what? There's this there's this holiday coming. I know it's you know like you can't even realize it's coming because it's just like sneaking up. It's called Christmas. Christmas. It's Christmas it happens every year, December twenty fifth, like clockwork. Now, if you have a woman in your life, they like to get stuff. We call those presents. And generally, it's like I just and I'll tell you what it is for us guys. You ask a woman, "What do you want?" You know me. I know you, but I don't know what you want. Well, get me some clothes. Oh hell no. Oh hell no. Because if the size is wrong and too small, you're gonna be mad at me because you're gonna say the thing I'm using. You're fat. And the size is wrong and it's too big, you're gonna tell me that. And my taste is not. So no, I'm not doing clothes. No, 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 not doing clothes. Um, and it's always hard. This is a great gift, and it's not just for ladies. If somebody, if I didn't have one, if somebody got me one, I'd be pretty damn happy about it. But I mean, for women in your life, for grandma, whatever. I mean, this is a great gift. It looks good. It's got timers built into it. It's really easy. It's not one of those complicated timers. So if you want to go to bed, you can set it to run for a couple hours. And I, I'll tell you what, I'll use essential oils when I'm working, when I'm having problems focusing on my work. Things like peppermint seem to help me with that. So this is a good product. And again, you can always help support us just by doing your online shopping at where? Tspaz.com. But remember, Christmas is coming. And uh, man, this is, I, I pulled this one out this time of year because I knew there's guys out there going, I don't know what to get. I don't, go look at it. And you'll be like, she'll like that. Yes, she will. Yes, she will. And you get the benefit of it, too. And you can say, I bought it for my wife so that nobody knows you like the smell of lavender. Big tough guy. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into our song of the day. Our song of the day is called The Light by Disturbed. And Disturbed, I, I know them mostly from their, their remake of The Sound of Silence. And they did a pretty good job of that. They've got a sound, I don't know, to me that kind of sounds like, everybody gets mad at me when I always compare one band to another because they think I'm saying they're the exact same. But they've got a sound that's kind of like, I don't know, Pearl Jam mixed with, um, gee, I, I just had the, the band and it went right out of my dad gone head. Queensryche, Queensryche, kind of like Queensryche and Pearl Jam had a baby or something, but uh When I heard this song, I was like, it's all right. It's it's not really the the, the style of music I listen to much anymore. I, I listen to like a lot of old singer-songwriter stuff like Dan Fogelberg, and I listen to the good country that comes out now and all the good country that used to come out, and that's classic rock, and that's that's my main stuff. But I was a, I was a 80s kid, man, and heavy metal and stuff, so this is us right in that kind of world. And But when I, when I actually listened to the words and I went and looked at The meaning behind it from from the the, the the writer and the author of the song and the lead musician that sings it in all in one there, um, I was like, man, this this is a song that our modern uh, our, our young generation needs to hear. It's called the light, but it's not really about the light. It's about going through darkness. It's about going through dark. It's about going through hard times. It's about failing. It's about losing. It's about loss. But the light that's there, you can only really see from the darkness. And I, when I realized that, like John hit another home run picking these songs out because good God do our, and when I say our young people, I'm talking to anybody 10 years younger than me at this point. Um, and, and many people my age, honestly. I'd say some people older than me need to get this message. This, 
we have lulled ourselves into believing that we're supposed to have like eternal bliss and happiness all the time or something's wrong. That's one of the reasons we have so many people freaking killing themselves. Like, I was miserable. You're supposed to be miserable at times, dummy. That's why you appreciate it when you're not. Can you imagine if there really was a such thing as a happy pill where you were constantly happy no matter what happened? You always felt fulfilled. You were always happy. You know what you would feel like? Shit. In about six months, even if it was still working, you'd feel like shit because there's no contrast. It is through the darkness that we find the light. It is through the struggle that we find success. And God, we have lost that. So home run on the song, John. Thanks for all the work you do picking them out for us. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Yourself.